Do you play all, I mean, do you actually play all these, or? Well, I play them and I cherish them. Mm -hmm. This is the top of the heap right here, there's no question about it. Look at the, look at the flame on that one. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's quite unbelievable. This, this one is just, uh, it's perfect, 1959, uh, you know, it just, you can, uh, listen. How much is just this? Just listen for a minute. I'm the not, sustain, listen to it. I'm not hearing anything. You would, though, if it were playing, because yeah. it really, it's famous for its sustain. I mean, you can yeah. just hold it. Well, I mean, so you'd have to pull. You can go, go and have a bite. No, you'd still yeah. be hearing that one. Yeah. This is a top to, uh, you know, what we use on stage, but it's very, very special because if you can see, yeah. the numbers all go to 11. Look, right across the board. Oh. 11, oh, 11, and most of 11, and then amps go up to 10. Exactly. Does that mean it's louder? Is it any louder? Well, it's one louder, isn't it? It's not 10. You see, most, most blokes, you know, be playing at 10. You're on 10 here, all the way up, all the way up, yeah. all the way up. You're on 10 on your guitar. Where can you go from there? Where? I don't know. Nowhere, exactly. What we do is if we need that extra push over the cliff, you know what we do? Put it up to 11. 11, exactly. One louder. Why don't you just make 10 louder and make 10 be the top number and make that a little louder? These go to 11. Star Wars fans and move milkers everywhere. Welcome to episode number 221 of Blast Points. This is Jason. And this is Gabe. It's a special show today, folks. We got a special interview. The one and only Phil Showstack, the creative art manager at Lucasfilm, author of The Art of Force Awakens, The Art of Last Jedi, The Art of Solo, The Art of the Rise of Skywalker, our favorite books of all time. He talked to us. He actually talked to us. He's every bit as cool as we hoped he would be. It's Yeah, we had so much fun talking to him. It was such an honor. But enough of us talking about it. Let's actually, let's listen to it. Let's see what Phil had to say when he talked to us a couple of days ago. All right, so we are honored here to be joined with the creative art manager at Lucasfilm, author of all of our favorite books of all time, Phil Shostak. Thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing today? All things considered, I'm doing all right. Thanks, Jason. Yeah, no, it's great to be here. Love the podcast. As you know, I've, I'm a listener and 
hopefully an honorary member of the Jedi Club. I don't know if I could <laughs> yeah. ask that of you guys. <laughs> yes, that would be all right. Yeah. yeah. I think we can make that happen. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate it. I love it. love the show and and yeah, it's it's awesome to be here finally. Yeah. It's it's awesome to have you here finally. So <laughs> thank you. <laughs> yeah, the Jedi Club. Well, we have a seat ready for you at Jedi Club. Whenever you're ready, the the popcorn is popped. A little folding chair from brought it up from the basement for me to sit on in the Jedi Club. Well, actually, it's probably just going to remain in the basement. I think that's where the Jedi Club convenes. Memory holds. We won't fill in Sharpie on it, so we have it. <laughs> I'm honored. Yeah, it's like my own little director's chair, Phil and Sharpie. Yeah. So you know where to sit. Yeah. Thank you. Well, okay. So, all right, let's get the standard boring first question out of the way. What is your very first Star Wars memory? How did How did this whole thing start? I'm old enough to go back all the way to the original trilogy and I'm pretty sure I saw Star, the original Star Wars in 77, but it could have been 78 or 79 as well, because as you guys probably know, they re-released it or continually released it from 77 to 80. It was so popular that it just kept running through those years. And I'm pretty sure I saw it the first time in a drive-in movie theater in the back of my dad's station wagon, um, which is a pretty epic way to see Star Wars for the first time. Um, and I was, I think my dad had rustled up some of my cousins. I think we were visiting my cousins up in Maine. We went to some random drive-in movie theater, but it was the second feature. And the first one was some dolphin movie, I think. So we're just like waiting for Star Wars through this like extremely tedious dolphin movie. And I think I fell asleep, right? As I recall during the cantina scene is when I passed out. I didn't quite make it all the way through. It was a double feature. So and yeah, I don't know if they even do double features anymore, but it was a common thing for drive-ins for sure back in the day. So yeah, no, it was a kind of an odd experience, but, you know, obviously made a huge impression on me. And I was like, a, you know, the two pillars of my childhood, as I've said in uh, elsewhere, is were Star Wars and the Muppets, the work of Jim Henson. And yeah, so I, I, I was a, a Star Wars fan from the, from the very beginning. What was it, do you think that, Star Wars had or did that kind of resonated so much with you as a kid, I guess, other than having Muppets in it. really. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, especially when Yoda showed up, that was like the ultimate. And I remember that much more clearly in 1980, I was old enough to, I was eight years old in 1980. So yeah. um, Old enough to really remember seeing empire more clearly than the first Star Wars, but it was just kind of like a part of every kid's life at that time. Like it was just everywhere. So I just don't think I could have avoided it if I wanted to. Um, And it was just so much fun and it just had such a great energy to it. Like, you know, it was exciting. The characters were weird and interesting. It's just, you know, it's just a visual delight. I mean, there's so many aspects to it that were captivating for a young kid at that time. And it was just, it was literally everywhere. Everyone was talking about it. Everyone was collecting it, you know, but you couldn't see the movie itself. That was the weird thing. And when I interviewed Ryan Johnson for The Art of The Last Jedi, that was something we talked about, that you'd kind of get in the schoolyard with your buddies and talk about it, trying to shit pool information, you know, because it wasn't like it was readily available. There was no, it wasn't even on VHS yet in the late 70s. I think it took six years for it to come out on home video, if if memory serves. So, yeah, no, we'd just get together with your buddies on the schoolyard and talk about it and uh, you know, thumb your way through the storybook with photos in it, um, and listen to the the LP version of the movie. You know, and in, in, you know, in lieu of actually seeing the movie again, which also, you know, your parents were going to humor you and take you to 
the film multiple times, you know, you were just going to see it once and that was it. So, so yeah, it was just everywhere. And just, it, it's hard to remember. It might've been one of the first movies I saw as well. It's hard to remember life before star Wars, honestly. Yeah. I know we, I think we feel the same way. Like it was the first movie I saw Gabe, it was, it was the first one for you too, wasn't it? It probably was. It's like, I barely remember it's, I think I've talked about this. Like, I don't remember not having seen star Wars. So it's kind of like, I don't even remember really the first time seeing it because I just feel like I've always have seen it. <laughs> so I, I couldn't <laughs> even tell you it, it probably was one of the first movies, but also the, the force as a concept, I think really resonated with kids just cause it was, it was a more relatable form of like magic and just something that seemed, and, and the power wasn't so incredible. Like, it was, you know, as simple as, you know, moving something to your hand or tricking someone with a Jedi mind trick. So it just seemed like something that was just on the cusp of being possible. And it would have been so cool, like, you know, if you could learn the force like Luke and, and do those amazing tricks, just seemed like relatable, possible and super cool. So as a kid, yeah, that really resonated with me as well, the force as a concept. I wonder if the dolphin movie, side note, <laughs> was Day of the Dolphin, which came out in 73 and starred George C. Scott, weirdly directed by Mike Nichols. Huh. I want, it, it says it's science fiction. I don't know. I wonder. It could be. I mean, I have almost no memory, obviously, of the dolphin movie. That made zero impression on me. We were not going to the schoolyard and talking about the dolphin movie with my <laughs> friends. You know, that wasn't happening. Did the dolphin at least talk in the movie or anything? <laughs> I don't think so. It's kind of like whatever vague memories I have of it. It's kind of like a free willyish sort of thing, like some kind of heroic dolphin or friend dolphin to a child or something. You know, more than that, I couldn't tell you. Okay, so so our next question about Dave the Dolphin is: <laughs> It's a Dave the Dolphin cast. Yeah, yeah we're, we're we're changing direction here. Yeah. Dave the Dolphin points. Yeah, yeah. Joseph E. Levine presents George C. Scott in a Mike Nichols film. The Day of the Dolphin. His brain is as big as a man's. What about their speaking in English? I beg your pardon? <laughs> so, okay, so you, you grew up a Star Wars fan, living through Empire, living through Return of the Jedi. What were, what were the, the, the dark times, the, the, the post-Return of the Jedi? What was that era like for you then? If you could see the look on my face, I mean... The embarrassing thing is <laughs> I was getting to the age, even by Return of the Jedi, I really loved. I actually came out of Return of the Jedi telling my family that it was like my favorite of the originals. I was just loving it, brimming with how great it ended. But very quickly, <laughs> you know, as Star Wars started to kind of drop off, like, and, you know, there was, of course, the droids and Ewoks cartoons and, and the Ewok TV movies. But my interest, and I was getting older, so my interest was starting to wane and shift. I was kind of getting interested in, in superhero comic books. But the, the, the big thing that kind of pulled me through that time was becoming a Star Trek fan. And I know uh, that's a, you know, it could be a bit controversial <laughs> that I, I kind of changed teams. Um, but uh, that was also the time, of course, when uh, Next Generation started. So that really pulled me in. And I became as kind of a hardcore a Star Trek fan as, as a Star Wars fan. No, you're, 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 you're safe around these parts. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. Yeah, no. Well, yeah, and there's as many Star Trek fans in Lucasfilm as there are Star Wars fans. Yeah, I don't know about you guys, you know, if, if Star Trek became a big part of your lives in that time. For me, it was it was really Deep Space Nine. Like, I watched Next Gen, 
and I enjoyed Next Gen, but D Space Nine, I got the fever real bad, <laughs> mm-hmm. and then I went back to Next Gen. Yeah, D Space Nine. I'm actually rewatching D Space Nine right now uh, through this quarantine, Ooh. and I'm in like season four or five, four. And uh, loving it all over again. Yeah, great show. Getting good. It's getting good. So yeah. when did so when did fandom and Star Wars kind of uh, re-enter your your adult life? Then so it's a long story, but I ended up living. I grew up in in uh, on the Jersey Shore, actually, which always raises some eyebrows when I when I admit <laughs> that. <laughs> but um, but I ended up moving to Montana at, in the mid nineties, and my girlfriend went to Walmart. And bought me those very first super muscular Star Wars figures. And it was right as the, the, the rumble was starting to happen about the prequels and the special editions. And that just like, it ignited, reignited my fandom immediately. Like I was just like all in, all over again. Like that spark of the original trilogy that was like burning inside me ever since I was a kid, you know, had not been extinguished at all and just exploded. Um, I also, you know, I definitely read think at least the first book in the Thrawn trilogy, but wasn't super into the EU, to be honest. I had read a few of the books. I read Splinter of the Mind's Eye for sure. I think I had read both the Han Solo and Lando trilogy as well. But th- those are early days stuff. And then my, you know, as I said, my interest kind of got pulled elsewhere. But uh, but it was, yeah, it was just those like first few new uh, Star Wars action figures, even though they were quite odd <laughs> with their extremely buff, you know, versions of Luke, Han, you know, Leia and Han and Chewie. Um, they were, uh, it was enough to kind of reignite that spark. And then of course, leading up to the, the special editions, I was just couldn't, couldn't wait. That was such a, an exciting time. It was like everywhere you would go, if you, you'd feel so happy if you found one Star Wars t-shirt somewhere. And then yeah. one person somewhere be like, "Hey, cool shirt, man!" You know, and like it was, mm-hmm. it was just such a an electric thing going on with Star Wars at that time. Yeah, no, it was awesome to kind of see it. Well, and just to realize that it was just like a s- proverbial, you know, sleeping bear or whatever. You know, it was just like just waiting to wake up and yeah, and it and it got yeah. There was like a f- I, so I, w- I was living in Butte, Montana when the special edition came out. Went to the local mall multiplex to see star wars you know the new hope special edition and a fight broke out in line <laughs> in, in montana you know because people were so pumped and people and these like high school kids started cutting the line so it just turned into like a big scuffle at the mall there. And so yeah i mean the, the the excitement was building and 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 the fans were coming out of the woodwork so yeah it was it was a great time to be a fan you know the, it just seemed like it you know the fans have been waiting for a chance to get back into it. And the special editions really provided that. And the electricity of like leading up to like, you know, we're only two years away from the, from episode one. Like yeah. it was yeah, people just sweating. Yeah, no, I was, I was sweating too. You know, it was, it, you know, I eventually uh, I moved to Missoula, Montana and I was at target like every other day <laughs> looking for action figures and various things, just waiting for that stuff to drop. And then, yeah, I think they, I think there was some kind of event before episode one. Um, and I went to KB Toys in the mall. It was like a midnight madness kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And I remember, yeah, walking around the mall in Missoula, Montana, going, you know, looking for that KB, you know, and um, buying, you know, little Annie and 
Rick Ollier, one of, <laughs> I know he's one of your yeah. guys' favorites. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just, uh, I'm wondering, like, oh, Rick Ollier, is he going to be the new Han Solo? You know? <laughs> Just trying to, just picturing in my mind who these characters will be, you know, and how cool they'll be in the film and everything. Yeah, he's he's kind of like the new Han Solo a little bit, just a little bit. Kind of, kind of, sort of. He's a bit. He's also he's very much like a Basil Exposition of Episode One. Yeah. You know, he's he's a, he's telling the audience what they need to know, which is somebody's got to do it, I guess. Why not Rick Olia? Yeah, Coruscant. The entire planet is one big city. That's it. Tatooine. There's Chancellor Valorum's shuttle. And look over there. Senator Palpatine is waiting for us. Did you always have an interest in the process of filmmaking? Or was that something that kind of came later in life? I kind of did. Yeah, no, for sure. It's funny, though. Like, my interest as a kid kind of shifted from film to animation. And that's what I went to school for. Uh, I went to art school in New York City for in, through a film animation program at School of Visual Arts. Yeah, I mean... But I did see those, you know, and, and really loved those original documentaries. And I think they showed them on PBS in the 70s and early 80s. Um, so I cl- very clearly remember seeing the original Star Wars documentaries on TV and just being blown away. And, I, and, you know, and that's something that's made an impression on me for sure, just how transparent Lucasfilm was with kind of revealing how the magic tricks were done from a very early point. I thought was really kind of bold considering you know, how captivated the world was by Star Wars. And you could see it as like a marketing opportunity or a chance, you know, but not every filmmaker, not every studio is willing to share those secrets, you know. And Star Wars was such an achievement, technically, you know, groundbreaking achievement for its time. You know, I'm sure they were kind of excited to share those secrets. But at the same time, yeah, no, it was just, and everyone, like everyone at that time, just blown away by like what they had achieved, um, what ILM had achieved, especially for the first film um, and yeah, just the technological breakthroughs and, you know, and, and grasping that to a certain extent as a kid, but then as I got older, understanding it more and more. And then, you know, obviously ILM was a big part of uh, Star Trek as well. Um, so continuing that understanding and, and, and growing in that understanding as the years went on. Your books are such a wonderful mix of the, the process of filmmaking and, the art, the amazing art that you, you gather from all all of those incredible artists. So, what's your what's your background with art? Like you mentioned that you went to school for for cartooning. Yeah, I went to school, like I said, art school, and you know, produced my own little animated short as my thesis project as a senior. Um, and after school, I worked in the animation industry really briefly, and kind of decided that I wanted to branch off and do my own thing. And at that time, I had been getting into indie comics, which were a big thing, and self-published comics. So I kind of saw an opportunity there. And for uh, a number of years, I uh, self-published and had those comics distributed nationally. And it was this little comic book I created called Logjam, which is probably impossible to find now, and hopefully people won't find it because <laughs> <laughs> I'm rather embarrassed by it now. But um, but yeah, no, I was a, you know, um, a cartoonist, definitely continued to be interested in animation. And then when I moved to San Francisco, my first job here was actually continued to be in animation um, uh, at a little studio called Wild Brain. So yeah, that's kind of my background with art, but always loved the uh, you know, art of Ralph McQuarrie, of course, and uh, and Joe Johnson, and Nilo rodas Jamero and John Malo, and all those amazing designers from the original trilogy. And of course, you know, Doug Chang and Ryan Church and Eric Tiemens from the prequel trilogy. So kind of knew of that world of concept art 
didn't fully grok it, I would say, until I started working more fully in the industry when I moved here to San Francisco in the early 2000s. So, um, but yeah, that's a little bit of my background on that front. And yeah, I mean, I always loved, obviously, just Ralph McQuarrie's work in particular just always blew my mind. And it was just an interesting kind of alternate take on what you saw in the film um, from different points of view or slightly weirder or different, you know. So it was always fascinating to me uh, and, and collected those Art of Star Wars books um, from the very beginning as well. So you're getting into indie comics and all this stuff. Who's around this time, were, were, were you discovering for yourself? Did you have like a Yoda, an Obi-Wan, like... <laughs> A you know a a guider to this uh, taking your first step into this this larger world. You know it's funny you mentioned that. Yeah, I did. Uh, so, and it wasn't. I mean, as far as the world of music, it was my older brother, and that's kind of what older brothers do, you know. Um, and and his taste in music definitely informed mine. But as far as art goes, and especially comics, growing up in in the Jersey Shore, there was this little comic shop in a in a little kind of mallish shopping area in Red Bank, New Jersey, which is famous for being the home of like Kevin Smith's comic book store. But long before Kevin Smith opened his shop there, there was this little shop that actually Kevin Smith himself went to when he was in high school um, called Fantasy Zone. And the, pro- the proprietor of Fantasy, well, the owner of Fantasy Zone was some guy that we hardly ever saw. But the guy who was the clerk at the shop was the one who introduced me to all these amazing comics. And I'm like forever uh, grateful for his guidance through the world of um, you know, I collected, I was collecting comics weekly when Watchmen was coming out, when The Dark Knight Returns was coming out, and then later, you know, Love and Rockets and Hate and Eight Ball and just all these amazing indie comics as well. And he just kept feeding me comic books um, and introducing me to, and he also introduced me to the world of manga, the very first uh, English translated manga, um, which included like my the psychic girl and kamui which was like a ninja comic and various other it was kind of a really random smattering of comics oh and uh, lone wolf and cub which definitely obviously ties into the mandalorian so i was reading lone wolf and cub as those were being translated into english and those had really amazing frank miller covers on them um which i remember uh, really well and yeah just being introduced to kind of you know comics around the world indie comics all kinds of stuff and it would never have happened had it not been for that one clerk at Fantasy Zone Comics in Red Bank, New Jersey. So, um, yeah, it's funny how it just takes one person sometimes to kind of set you on a path. Yeah, it's amazing because you wonder, like, I mean, these things, like, for all of us are so part of who we are now and the way we think and the way we view other art and everything. And you wonder, like, oh, gosh, if I if that one person didn't exist at that place, like where would I be? Like would I be me? What what would be happening? You know. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed, yeah. No, I feel really fortunate to have that guiding hand. You know, this was, you know, it's in my awkward junior high school and high school years. You know, so it's also just nice to have like an ally. And sometimes he would just leave the store to go get cigarettes or whatever. Um, he actually had a band, and he would be coloring in his band flyers. He was like ten years older than me or whatever. He'd be like, I got to go get smokes. Watch the store fill. And I'd be like, oh, okay. So I just <laughs> stand there awkwardly in the middle of the store where shoppers are still milling about in the store. And I'm like, uh, uh, you know, just nervous that someone's going to steal something while he's away. I'm like, what am I going to do? Tackle somebody or something? But, you know. but um, yeah, no, it was, it was great. And um, yeah, actually, that, that, that clerk is, I've talked about him on Twitter before. His name's Dave Weindorf. And he became. Uh, the lead singer of the band Monster Magnet, who had a 
some singles in the in the 1990s and a video on MTV. So oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I remember them. Yeah, yeah, I know Monster Magnet. Yeah. Oh, that's crazy. Okay, that's even more crazy now. Because it is more crazy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I know. I, I tagged Dave when I talked about him on Twitter, and he responded very nicely. You know, and I, I just wanted to let him know that he had a big impact on my my career in art and yeah. and just my life as a as a fan. You know, so it's awesome. Yeah, just really random that he turned into like a rock star. You know, he's like a comic shop clerk <laughs> turned rock star, you know. So after being, you know, getting into animation, what kind of led you to make the transition and, and end up trying to work for Lucasfilm? Well, after I got back from Montana, <laughs> I was like looking for a new place to live. <laughs> um, and it was, you know, it was a beautiful place to live, but pretty isolating, uh, especially for a young person um, trying to get started and not a whole lot to do there <laughs> as a young person as far as careers go. So yeah, I, I kind of purposely chose San Francisco one because a childhood friend was living here. So I had a one point of contact and two, knowing that Lucasfilm and Pixar were here were like a huge draw for me. And so, yeah, when I got that job at wild brain, I just saw it as like kind of a opportunity to get my foot in the door and, you know, start to work my way up the, the chain. And I was there for four years working on this, uh, Disney preschool show, which was one of the first uh, computer animated films on television, excuse me. Yeah, and it was an amazing experience. Really got to understand the process of how an animated TV show is made. And without that, I would not have even gotten an interview um, to work at Lucasfilm. But <laughs> while I was working at Wild Brain, though, I was definitely, like I, I often imagine, the, you know, I picture the image of me shooting my resume at both Pixar and Lucasfilm with a machine gun, like any job listing, you know, like gardener, you know, cook, whatever. Like <laughs> yeah. I was just looking for any opportunity to work at, at either Lucasfilm or Pixar. And they must have seen my name enough that they finally gave up. <laughs> they were like, we got to give this guy an interview or he's never going to go away. So I, I really kind of bombarded them with my resume and, and interest. Yeah, just one day I got an email saying like, hey, do you want to come up for an interview at Skywalker Ranch? And I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> it was quite an amazing day. And then, of course, terrifying until I got there and then terrifying while I was there and terrifying afterwards. You know, I, I still remember the drive to Skywalker Ranch. I had been there once before, actually, when I was working at Wild Brain, me and the editor on Higley Town here is Alex Hauser. He knew someone at Skywalker Sound. And they were throwing away old sound equipment. So we went there to collect it and, you know, use for our purposes on the show. Um, so we drove up to Skywalker Ranch. And I got to hang out in the, in the building where Skywalker Sound are. And it was beautiful and amazing. And the, I remember standing on the porch of, of Skywalker Sound and thinking, like, oh, if I could only work here, you know, like full time, it would be so amazing. But I'm just going to relish this opportunity today to be here and soak it all in because I never thought I'd be back. So yeah, cut to whatever, you know, a year or two later, I'm at Skywalker Ranch or driving to Skywalker Ranch across the Golden Gate Bridge and just thinking like, if I drive off this bridge right now, I won't have to face this terrifying situation. <laughs> so I literally thought like I could just crash my car, you know, and not have to deal with it, you know. And um, But I did. I, I made my way up there. And and my interview was with Rick McCallum, who I know also is a uh, is is uh, someone that you guys uh, are big fans of. There was no easing into that, right? You're, you're, you're <laughs> I just dropped that bomb on your lap and I just chucked a grenade into the blast points room and 
So did Rick McCollum being Rick McCollum make the interview easier or harder? <laughs> uh, that's an interesting <laughs> question. I think I, I, of course, knew who Rick was and of course knew what being in the main house of Skywalker Ranch and being in Rick McCollum's office meant. So I was just dying inside, you know, <laughs> I was in a, I was in a fugue state mentally that whole interview. I was like pretty much checked out. So I don't think it would have mattered one way or the other who I was talking to or what I was, it was a pretty exciting, but terrifying interview, but apparently I made an impression on them in a good way. Um, not just, not just due to my terror, I, I assume. Yeah. So no, I mean, it was a beautiful office and Rick is a very warm and emotional guy. So, you know, the kind of guy who just like put his arm around you and, you know, yeah. So no, it was, I mean, it was, it was a great experience. And again, like not assuming I would get the job and, you know, just being like, Oh, just having this story, you know, of, of driving up to the ranch and, you know, entering the main house and going to Rick McCallum's office, you know, like I couldn't wait to tell everyone about this weird experience I had, you know, uh, never assuming that I would get the job. Did you know your interview was going to be with Rick McCallum beforehand or did, was that like a, a surprise to you when you showed up? I uh, know I definitely knew. Um, and, uh, yeah, Rick's assistant, I remember walking in the front door and there's this beautiful staircase there that leads up to the second floor. And I remember Rick's assistant coming down to, to meet me and yeah, just being like, okay, here we go. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and just walking up those stairs, you know, just one step at a time. No, I definitely knew it was going to be with Rick and that definitely put the pressure on. Cause you know, I, I just, this was the opportunity, an amazing opportunity and an opportunity that I had been waiting for. So it, it was, yeah, it, it, it was an incredible experience, obviously. Did you have to change your shirt when you got back into the car? <laughs> I think I may have turned changed my shirt when I, after before I got to my car. I may have like ducked into the bathroom or something. Yeah, I mean, it was it was yeah no it was crazy and yeah and then obviously such a relief when it was over. But then also on pins and needles waiting to hear back and yeah I think I literally got back to my place and they had reached out to some of the folks I had worked with on my previous job on Hickley Town Heroes, uh, that animated show, I think within hours they said, you know, you got the job. And then, but then, <laughs> so the, the classic, I made a classic mistake from that point forward. <laughs> and that mistake was that I was, you know, I wasn't busy at the time, but I was like, okay, I got to let them know that I'm, you know, I got to play a little hard to get. So I was like, uh, you know, could I have a week or two? to get ready you know before i transition into this new position and they were like yeah sure you know we'll see you in a couple weeks and so those were the the most terrifying two weeks of my life i like i just couldn't like my mind was racing every minute of every day like oh no i'm a fraud they're gonna find out i'm a fraud you know like i can't believe i've done this to myself what have i done you know like maybe i should just call them and tell them i can't do it or you know this like so I just got in my own head. So yeah, no, that, that was a huge mistake. I should have just started right away. I don't know what I was thinking. I was uh, trying trying to be cool, and it, it did not work. It, it wasn't it wasn't a very relaxing two week vacation. Does it no. sound like? <laughs> no, it was it was horrible. And you know, and then that only that that horrible feeling only went away once I actually started and realized, okay, I can do this. This is this is manageable. This is in the realm of of what I can do. They're not gonna discover that I'm I, I don't know what I'm doing uh, I kind of know what I'm doing so in those early days so then what were, what were you doing there well in the first week or so it was just kind of getting up to speed but yeah I mean the pretty much the whole 
year, few years that I was up at the ranch, I was working on the live action TV series and I was the coordinator of the art department up there. So just kind of leading this gang of concept artists who I was being introduced for the first time, some of whom I knew um, just through my experience, you know, knowing Star Wars and knowing concept art, but others who I was just meeting, um, you know, three of whom were fresh out of college. So um, they were kind of starting their careers, uh, <laughs> like hitting the ground running, working with George Lucas up at Skywalker Ranch on the live action TV series. So, uh, but they had already been there. A lot of the artists had already been there for a couple of years before I showed up. The, pro, the, the show was kind of moving to another phase where they would need someone like me to start organizing things and, you know, setting up meetings and, you know, working with George and stuff. So, so yeah, it wasn't enough that, you know, in, in that first, the period before I got there, it was just George and two artists, I think, for a year, maybe. And then when I showed up, like the crew got a little bigger and I came in and started organizing all the work that had been started before me. So, yeah. Um, so that was my first job. So, yeah, no, it's it's a crazy first job at Lucasfilm. Yeah, just jumping right into the fire there. <laughs> yeah, I was tossed right into the deep end. It's like, hope you can swim. Yeah. Yeah. So that makes me think, so having worked on the original live-action show that, that never really got to happen, were, were you extra excited and happy when, when Mandalorian kind of actually came out and, and was able to get through completion absolutely yeah no it's it's funny you mentioned that because that's something we've talked about and thought about in the lucasfilm art department uh which i'm a part of now uh, doug chang's art department because uh quite a few of us including eric Tiemens and ryan church worked on that show so it was full circle for the, those of us that worked on that 12 plus years ago uh, or started it at least then to now be a part of the full realization of a live action Star Wars TV series. So yeah, I know it's a thrill to, yeah, it's a, it's a really weird full circle thing and something that I wasn't super consciously aware of in the moment. Cause so many other projects had uh, happened in the interim that when all of a sudden I was, I was, you know, part of a, I didn't think twice about it at first, but it's, yeah, it's only in the last you know year or so that I've thought like, Oh wow. Like, yeah, like this is kind of how it all started for me. And here we go again, you know? <laughs> So you, you mentioned you're at the the art department now and with with Doug Chang and all that. What's mm-hmm. so what what's a typical day for you? Uh, <laughs> maybe not today. Maybe not nowadays. But, uh... Don't change out of my PJs. <laughs> no. So no, a typical day. Uh, well, that's the crazy thing. Like I've often said this to to friends and family and stuff. It's like I feel like I'm always doing something for the first time ever. Uh, that's kind of been my life at Lucasfilm from the very beginning. Like I'm always you know, panicking a little bit, realizing like, oh no, I've never done that before. I've never been asked to do that before, but somehow I always figured it out and land on my feet. But yeah, my job is really multifaceted. And I think the job description is kind of apt, you know, creative art manager, because it doesn't really tell you anything <laughs> about what exactly I do do. Um, and yeah, and so, I mean, it really depends on what's happening um, for the art department and in the company at the time that I'm working. Um, like if we've got a film in production, which is most of the time um, I'm often being pulled by various department heads or artists, especially within the uh, art department, but also um, on the production side at Pinewood or down at uh, in LA for the Mandalorian. And they're tapping me for either information or uh, visual reference from star Wars or anything. It could be, you know, sometimes they're looking for a reference of uh, samurai swords or sometimes they're looking for, 
particular artist's work or it could be anything. So I'm, I'm, you know, often, you know, working as a researcher in that researcher in that capacity, but I'm also, you know, a big part of my job is kind of tracking and disseminating concept art, both internally and to like external partners. So I'm kind of following along with pretty much every project, looking at the concept art and then, and tracking it. And, um, you know, if anyone has a need for any of that art, um, making sure that they get what they need. So uh, that's a big part of my job. I also review a lot of publishing stuff. Um, happy to work with my friends in publishing. Uh, so, I'm, you know, whenever you see my name, if you've ever seen my name in a Star Wars comic book, um, it's definitely something that I've uh, tracked through every stage of the process from um, pencils or layouts to pencils to inks to color. You know, me and the story group see all that stuff um, and give notes on it. Um, so just making sure everything kind of aligns and if, and also making sure that kind of like as a story group is to narrative continuity, I'm very much to visual continuity. So making sure that projects aren't kind of stepping on each other's toes and there isn't a design that's reflective of a design in another project that we don't want two things that are exactly the same coming out at the same time without either project being aware of it. So that's why it's really good for me to be, have eyes on everything, all projects. Um, so yeah, I'm seeing all the art as it's being created on a daily basis um, which is an incredible honor and, and super cool just to see all this amazing art being generated every day. Yeah, no big deal. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no big deal. You know, just all this, you know, Doug Chang originals every day, you know, whatever. <laughs> Got to go to work again today. <laughs> oh, darn it. <laughs> Look at art all day. So how did the the gig of doing the the art of the force awakens how did that come about because that's just like a side gig right it is yeah it's actually a a second job um people might assume that it's a part of my job as creative art manager at lucasfilm it's definitely not i wish it kind of (laughs) were in the sense that i end up having to do it on like weekends and uh at night and stuff so so that yeah that that can be a bit tricky uh, when i'm working on a on an art of book which is a lot of the time um, I'm working two jobs technically, but anyway, yeah, um, that opportunity kind of fell in my lap in a really cool way. Um, working up at the ranch at the time that I did, Jonathan Rinsler, who was a former senior editor of publishing at, at Lucasfilm, he would come, you know, come up to the ranch to work with George on various books that he was kind of spearheading, uh, either writing or working as an editor on, um, and so he was spending a lot of time up at the ranch and a lot of time with George. And I just, I don't know if I bumped into him or exactly how that connection was made. But, you know, we started having uh, lunch together and, and just getting to know each other up at the ranch uh, in the days that he was up there. And that continued when I moved down to um, the campus here in San Francisco. So, yeah, we just kind of formed a friendship and uh, we would go get Chinese food, <laughs> me and, and John Rensler, and just talk about movies and Star Wars. And in that process, I think, John got to realize that I knew kind of my stuff and, you know, obviously working with all the concept artists at the time I was, you know, helping coordinate the art department on, uh, on the force awakens and him just kind of wanting to hand that, you know, he did, he did the, obviously he, Jonathan Rinsler, uh, JW Rinsler wrote the art of, um, revenge of the Sith and kind of, I think wanted to, focus on other things and you know wanted to was looking for someone to kind of hand that project off to the art of books too and and just getting to know me and knowing that I was in the art department and working with the artist you know I think he just saw me as the perfect candidate so one day he just like flat out asked me hey are you interested in 
in writing the art of the force awakens and i was like <laughs> like it really was you know one of those moments where and yeah and it was just over the years i've kind of gotten in the frame of mind when someone asks you a question like that like don't think about it too much just say yes you know um and you know i really didn't know what i was getting myself into but i did say yes immediately and um so yeah that's kind of how it happened yeah uh, jw rinsler just asked me one day and, and that was it kind of set me on this path so one of our probably favorite and, and the most fascinating parts of the art books is really the the blue sky period back for Force Awakens. Yeah. So with so many ideas being thrown around and all the kind of different creative input and things going through, like what are some memories of that period? And, and was it as exciting for you as it seems in the book or was it more kind of nerve wracking or were you just kind of like, it was just a blur at this point? <laughs> no, I remember just, it's, it was both exciting and nerve-wracking in probably equal measure. Was, I mean, a thrill to be a part of, you know, this reemergence of Star Wars, you know, on the big screen um, and working with, you know, these amazing, you know, it was the first time that I worked with Doug was on The Force Awakens. So I was already kind of like halfway through my career at Lucasfilm and working with Doug for the first time. Uh, but then also, you know, other artists that I was working with for the first time, like Ian McKaig, and uh, James Klein, who were, you know, these industry veterans. So the, the term that I used at the time was like, I felt like I was running with the big dogs, you know, like, <laughs> here, you know, here we go. So it was, it was exciting, but also terrifying and exhausting. And I think for everyone, because we all wanted to, you know, we felt the weight of the responsibility um, so heavily and just wanted to get it right. And just kind of like, it was really a slog. I mean, there was a ton of work being generated but really trying to kind of find our way through, like, what is the story? What are these characters? You know, what is this film going to look like? What is this going to be? And it was, I mean, it was really like a day-by-day process. And, I mean, sometimes the guys were doing upwards of, normally a piece of concept art takes, you know, just a single piece of, you know, full concept art, the kind you would see in one of the books, takes a couple days to do. Um, And in this case, they were, you know, being asked to generate multiple pieces a day. Um, so it was just a huge workload. And for me, I mean, I would just remember working super long hours and just being kind of exhausted. It was like a, it was a really intense time, but I mean, then that work was being put in to make it as good as everyone wanted to be, which is, I mean, and the fruits of that labor is in in that book. Um, you know, only in small part too. I mean, there's just so much art that was generated in that time. I mean, you could really do like three volumes of just that period alone. Um, just amazing, amazing stuff that's still being mined, you know, like, I'm really glad that these books exist, not only as a resource for the fans, but just for the company, for people to see what a record for what was done in a really digestible way. You know, you can have this book on your shelf if you're in animation department or games or whatever and flip through and, and maybe get inspired or, or just straight up take an idea from a book, you know, um, that's a really cool thing. Does something like that happen from time to time where maybe someone is like flipping through the book and they're like, you know, I really like this piece on this page, this panel. And do they ask you, like, is there more art from that day or that week that are similar? Is that the kind of thing that you would go look for? Absolutely. Yeah, no, that exact thing has happened on a number of occasions for sure. And yeah, I think, um, yeah, one of um, Christian Altman's designs for an early design for the Jedi killer who became Kylo Ren. Um, became one of the inquisitors on rebels. So yeah, no, there's been a few occasions where that work has been tapped into directly. You know, another filmmaker on another project has seen something 
in one of these books and, and decided to pull from it or ask me if there's, yeah, is there more of that world that is briefly glimpsed in the book and, but was more fully fleshed out in the art. And we have this amazing database that's literally got hundreds of thousands of pieces of concept art in it that I can, that's thankfully, you know, keyworded so I can find things fairly easily, but I'm also relying on my own memory of those, you know, having kind of seen all that art being created, you know, as it was happening um, just uh, dipping into my own memory bank and, and hopefully uh, knowing what people are talking about or referring to and, and finding that stuff for them. So what's the, the process of actually making a Star Wars art, art book? Where, how does the work begin? How do you decide what, what pieces to use? Um, so actually I began the art of The Rise of Skywalker all the way back in the summer of um, 2018. Um, I wanted to get a kind of a jump on it because I knew how busy 2019 would be with the Mandalorian and the Rise of Skywalker and Jedi Fallen Order. And, you know, I mean, it was just a massive year. Um, so I just wanted to get an early start, especially knowing being as many books in as I was at the time, um, just knowing how involved the process is. So, yeah, um, the first step for me is always kind of figuring out, like, what is this book going to look like? Like, how is it going to be laid out? Um, just deciding. And in this case, um, in the art of the rise of Skywalker, I kind of wanted it to be like a victory lap for all the different departments that worked on the film and that had been working on all the films at Pinewood, you know, and, uh, you know, their compatriots at Lucasfilm for the last six years. So really a tribute to those departments and just also to cement in readers' minds, like what each department's kind of responsible for and which artists are part of which department. So yeah, deciding that kind of organizational, methodology for each book is the first thing I kind of tap into. And then I do a preliminary layout, um, taking the art that's available at the time. And so, yeah, a lot of people might assume that we just give a whole bunch of art to the publisher and they decide how it's going to be laid out. But no, that, that actually is something that I, uh, one of the first things that I tackle on the book. Um, and then of course, you know, Abrams books takes it and makes it look pretty because I am certainly no expert on, you know, in, in, in design, the program that I use or, book layout in general. It's definitely not my field, but um, I like to think that I'm starting to get a handle on it. So yeah, and then, you know, one of the first things I write as far as actual text is the intro, um, because that doesn't depend on interviewing anyone or... So yeah, and that's an opportunity for, for me to really express myself as a creative and, you know, someone who's been involved with Star Wars as to my perspective on this film and, and design within Star Wars as well. And then, yeah, and then I start interviewing people and try not to jump into the manuscript before I interview everyone that I want to talk to. But sometimes I have no choice because of you know, scheduling issues. And oftentimes I'm interviewing people while they're still working on the film, which is you know, why I end up uh, going to Pinewood to interview folks, which in the case of this book included uh, director J.J. Abrams and his uh, co-writer Chris Terrio. So that was amazing. Those trips to Pinewood are just mind-blowing, as you could imagine. I, you know, there was a photo I think I shared on Twitter of me standing on the, the second Death Star throne room set. Um, so yeah, stuff like that is just like out of body experience, you know, yeah. as you can imagine. Not a bad day at work. No, not at all. <laughs> Another day. Oh, I gotta go to work. I guess I gotta go. Yeah. To, I guess I gotta go to Pinewood and check on this new Star Wars movie. I don't know. I guess I'll get out of bed and dragging my feet on my way to work. Uh, grumble, grumble. No, I mean those. Yeah, thrilling days at, at Pinewood, especially when you get those. Actually, um, yeah, so when I talked to JJ, he was bouncing between the set and talking to me, filming the scenes with Babu Frick in Babu Frick's workshop. 
And I did not at the time realize the impact that that character would have. Um, but I remember standing outside that set. Um, and of course, from the outside, it looks very different than it does from the inside. But standing out that's outside that set waiting for JJ to, to be free to, to chat with me. So yeah, uh, just really cool memories and amazing experiences uh, interviewing folks. And yeah, and then when the interviews are all collected, I have to then transcribe them all which is the part of the process I really hate because I'm just listening and transcribing for it's usually an hour of interview takes about four to six hours of transcribing, especially with as slow a typist as I am. That's also not my area of expertise. So yeah, transcribe all the interviews and then start to plow through the manuscript, which takes a few months to do. Um, and like I said, I'm, you know, I'm often working on the manuscript a year before the book comes out, um, which is usually the winter holidays of the previous year before the film comes out. So I usually don't have a Christmas holiday, as I did not the Christmas of uh, 2018. I was uh, at work for that entire two weeks off uh, working on the book. So that's that could be a bit of a bummer. But, you know, it is what it is. And, you know, deadlines are deadlines. So I got to keep hammering away on the book until it's done. Well, thank you for spending your Christmas breaks making the wonderful art books because... There. No, it's, it's worth it for us. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. No, it's, I, I'm just joking around. Really, it's my pleasure. You know, it's and it just is what it is with the timing. You know, well, with the art books, one of the things that that we just like so much too is that it, it's half getting to see the great art, but also you know the interviews and the kind of behind the scenes making of stuff. Was that kind of always the idea that these art books would be that kind of a combination, or is that something that you wanted to add, or is that something that came back from J.W. Rinsler, because I think, you know, his art of book maybe had a little bit of that stuff, too. Kind of what was where did that all kind of come from? Yeah. um, Yeah. As you were saying that, my head was shaking. No, (laughs) like the intention was definitely not for these to be kind of a hybrid art of making of at all. And I really mirrored the work on the art of The Force Awakens to what Jonathan had done on the art of Revenge of the Sith. So I was pretty much just straight up copying what he did because I did not know what I was doing at the time. I was just like, oh, so and yeah, and I'd never written a book before, never intended to ever write a book. Um, So this was all totally new territory for me. So that one didn't have a ton of text in the manuscript. But then uh, Josh Cushions, who wrote an amazing book with the art of Rogue One, um, when I saw what he did with that one and how much that one kind of you know, I feel like the books were kind of slowly morphing into these art of making of hybrids, but with a focus on the design side of making of, you know, I'm not going to get into too much of the, you know, post-production ILM side of things or the nuts and bolts of how the designs are translated into set builds or anything. Um, I feel like that is a responsibility of a book that has more space and time and, you know, like a true making of book, you know, would tackle that kind of territory. But I do feel like I get to touch on that. And the design does, the design process and all the concept art that is generated, it happens throughout the production from pre-production to production to post-production so there's a reason to kind of track through the entire timeline of the making of a film so it just kind of naturally fit that i you know it would kind of slowly morph over time into this kind of hybrid book that it's become yeah i was really inspired with the art of the last jedi by what josh had done on the art of uh, rogue one which is an amazing book so i was like i just saw an opportunity to really kind of Um, grow these books and to make them into something um, which I felt was even more special. I think we would agree that they are very special. (laughs) So what what would you say are, what what would you say some of the the greatest challenges when you're, when you've been working on these books? Uh, 
I mean, they're, they're honestly an, entirely a challenge. Um, I think it's, it's really just meeting my own expectations for what they should be. Um, I mean, I put a lot of pressure on myself and I also feel a real, the weight of the responsibility as everyone who works on star Wars does to get it right. And to represent all these amazing artists in a way that I, does the, does them justice and all these amazing filmmakers as well. Like people like Rick Carter and JJ and Ryan and I mean, everybody just, uh, yeah. So I, you know, I do put a tremendous amount of pressure on myself to, to get it right. So, I mean, I definitely, feel that responsibility and you know want these books to to be great um and uh, yeah and, and especially represent the films in the best possible way you know so yeah that's i mean the entire the entirety of the process is a challenge in that regard so of the books you've done so far which one are you most proud of and if it's not the same one what's the one that i guess is the was the most memorable for you I mean, I'm definitely proud of the first one just in the fact that I was able to do it because <laughs> I did, did not have absolute faith in my ability to, to, to write a book at all. You know, I mean, that's an understatement. But I think the one I'm still the most proud of was The Art of the Last Jedi because it was the one that I kind of wanted to take to the next level. And I feel like I was able to kind of achieve that and set the pace for the books that followed. Um, so yeah, they are the last Jedi. I feel like almost in a way it's like the first, the first of my books, even though it wasn't the first, um, because it really, you know, set the tone and, and the depth for the, for the books that followed. So yeah, that one is one that I'm, I'm especially still fond of and, uh, remember fondly and, and interviewing Ryan for that book. Um, he was editing the film at the time, which was kind of a year out from its release. And that was an amazing experience getting to sit down with, with, with Ryan Johnson while he was. Uh, in the process of putting the film together, assembling it uh, for, I think he spoke with me for two hours. Wow. And I feel like that interview, and he was, it was all still fresh in his mind, you know, every, all the themes and everything and everything he had been, been working toward with the film. And he had not talked to anyone about it yet outside of his own crew. I was like the first kind of media person, you know, author or whatever, who really had asked Ryan these questions so I think he really relished the opportunity to finally kind of talk about it with someone he could kind of speak freely with. So yeah, that was an amazing interview and yeah. And, and a favorite of mine. Yeah. No big deal. No big deal. <laughs> <laughs> no, exactly. Sit down with Ryan Johnson for a couple hours, whatever. Yeah. Just editing the movie. Let's just talk about it. Let's talk about some last Jedi stuff. Yeah. 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 Star Wars art, as we know, uh, concept art has such a, uh, incredibly unique and illustrious history when when you look back on 40 plus years of the amazing art that's been produced um for the production of these movies what pieces stand out to you what pieces jump into your mind as ones that continue to have set the trend for star wars art today you know obviously the work of ralph mccoy really set the pace for all the art that followed and the one for whatever reason that really there's a few from a new hope that i love uh, one of which is uh, Laser Duel, as it's called, uh, from 75, where it's Deke Starkiller, not Luke Skywalker, <laughs> versus Darth Vader clashing lightsabers in that rebel uh, space fighter hallway, which became the blockade runner hallway. So that famous piece of, of kind of a slightly different looking Darth Vader fighting someone who looks kind of like Luke, but he's got like a gas mask on. Um, I really love that piece. I just feel like that was so evocative. And yeah, the set design for the blockade runner was taken like one-to-one from that piece. Um, so yeah, that one, even though it's not a part of the film, I believe it's from the second draft. Yeah. From the star Wars second draft. 
um, and is not a part of the finished film. And I just really love that piece. Um, and then I also love from that same period, actually probably, I think it was from just a month later in early 1975, one called Cantina, which is uh, Luke Starkiller, uh, Deke's brother, <laughs> in in the you know an early version of the Masai Cantina facing off against three aliens, you know that that famous kind of like you know Western shootout. They're drawing their weapons um, piece, um, and yeah, the aliens in that piece inspired the the design of the Hask triplets, uh, which you see in Maz's Castle in The Force Awakens. So I think those two pieces are the ones that immediately jump to mind um, from A New Hope as. Not like necessarily, obviously, you know, a one-to-one with what the film became, but just kind of setting the tone and the feel and the vibe of what Star Wars would become. Um, yeah, just uh, just really love them. Of all the art that's kind of been released and, and that you can talk about, are there some images that as they were, the designs were coming out, you were really looking forward to them being in the movie and they didn't end up on screen? Um. Are you kind of numb to that at this point, knowing that everything you see might not end up in a movie? No, that's a. I mean, that, it is kind of like that for me. Like, I don't. Yeah, I mean, you never assume that anything will necessarily be a part of the movie or not, especially in that early kind of concept phase where they're just kind of feeling their way through, you know, the look of the movie, the tone of the movie, you know, what it could possibly be. I mean, one thing that I really loved in the Art of the Rise of Skywalker, and that I was, I was in the uh, Lucasfilm art department when that art was being developed. Um, I know Yannick Dussault worked on it and um, Christian Altman also did some pieces where it was Kylo Ren um, landing his shuttle on Coruscant and making his way to the Jedi temple and Coruscant's abandoned. There's like, you know, dust, uh, you know, everywhere and, and space wolves roaming the streets and just really wild and interesting. And, and just the idea of like Kylo Ren on Coruscant, you know, a world we haven't seen since, you know, um, the prequels, at least uh, theatrically. And, making his way to the Jedi temple and entering the Jedi temple, just like I thought that would have been really amazing, but of course understand why, you know, uh, Exegol was created instead um, to kind of serve a similar purpose. Um, Cause it just gives you so much more freedom as a filmmaker um, creating a new world um, and having it be, you know, like a Sith homeworld versus just um, Coruscant, which is obviously not, not the same. So uh, yeah, that would have been amazing to see. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't get married to ideas that I see as they're popping up either at all. Like, you know, you know, I see that concept art being generated. I'm like, oh, that's cool. But then, you know, I see Exegol being created and I'm like, oh, that's cool too. So yeah, I don't, I don't, you know, begrudge the decisions that are made at all, you know, and, and usually, you know, completely understand why those choices are made. You started as a fan. So back in the early days and, you're seeing this amazing stuff getting created and like not getting attached to it. How hard is that keeping the star Wars fan kind of, of like, Oh, I'm, that'd be awesome. If we went back to Coruscant kind of, cause you're still at work and you're still, it's a process. Like what's that like for you? I don't feel like, yeah, I don't, I don't feel that conflict at all. Like it's kind of my professional life working for Lucasfilm is fully integrated into my fandom. And yeah, um, you know, I don't, like to speculate, you know, as to what could possibly happen before I know what will happen. And, you know, I'm just really accepting of what filmmakers and artists bring to this process and, and as, and really open to it. And I think I was that way as a fan as well. You know, I, I, you know, before I became a professional in the industry, I really kind of, you know, especially, (laughs) I mean, if you were a Star Trek fan in the eighties, you know, that like, you know, there were some Star Trek films that were better than others. And it, 
seemed to happen kind of every other Star Trek film was better, you know, and then the next one was uh, not so great, you know, and it was, uh, you know, and you just kind of accepted that process, you know, like, oh, if I don't like this, then maybe the next one will be, you know, fun, or, you know, and just kind of assuming that, you know, so yeah, I kind of bring that attitude into my work. It's just like very accepting of, of what I see and, and what comes down the pike and, and not getting too attached as a fan to uh, any one idea. Um, always very hopeful that, you know, I'm going to love the finished product and I usually do. So there's a lot to love in Star Trek five. I've been telling people <laughs> that. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to crochet it on any particular film and no, and there is a lot to love in Star Trek five, that campfire scene. I mean, come on. Some of the best Kirk, Spock, McCoy interactions are going, you know, Cybok, he's looking for Shaka Ari. Come on, he's <laughs> having a good time with it. The effects aren't great, but you roll with it. You know, yeah. you just roll with it. Yes, indeed. Yeah, no, yeah. It's, it's, no, it's got some great moments in it for sure. And yeah, I don't want to throw shade on any, on any film in particular because that's the thing. It's like it's, it's with any film series, there's going to be ones that you love more than others. And the one that you like the least might be someone else's favorite. So, you know. Well, and it's always interesting as, you know, the years go by, how you revisit things and, and your favorites change sometimes too. And and that's kind of one of the things that's nice is that there's things that you neglected for all these years and you go back and you're like, wait, why did I not like this? I'm kind of really into this now. Yeah. No, for me, the biggest flip was um, in Star Wars was The, for, uh, the Phantom Menace. That film, I, it's my favorite of the prequels now. Um, and I just love how bold george's choices were how you know fun and crazy the movie is i mean it's just it's a wild ride and yeah and it was something i definitely did not appreciate in the same way at the time i mean i, I still loved it and i saw it like i don't know nine times or something theatrically but it's only now yeah in, in hindsight that i really kind of respect it and and respect you know the chances george as a filmmaker was that was taking with with episode one so slightly off topic, but I need to ask in the archives or in your work life are, had you ever come across or does Lucasfilm keep the art for the children's books? So either newer children's books or the, some of the older ones, you know, the Ewok books or the Wookiee storybook, it, does Lucasfilm keep any of that stuff or does that stay with the, the publishers? It stays with the publishers, generally speaking, um, especially stuff going way back in time. Um, yeah, it's really not a part of our database that I'm aware of. I mean, there could be dark corners of it that I don't have access to. <laughs> so, you never know. But as far as I know, a lot of stuff that's licensed, you know, like for a, you know, a game publisher or a, a book publisher, um, that stuff uh, tends to stay with them. But we can, of course, you know, ask them for access for anything that we need. But, um, but especially stuff that, that goes that far back in time, uh, you know, yeah. Is there something in particular you have in mind? I, I feel like this is a leading question. <laughs> I was just curious because a lot of those, I mean, the, the older stuff and lately I've been, I've been buying a lot of the, uh, the kids Phantom Menace art books or not art books, uh, kids books, because they have like some really kind of wild painted art in them. And it's just one of those things that's kind of special about Star Wars is in addition to like, you know, art for the movie, there's always this kind of crazy art for, the merchandising thing. And I, I was just kind of curious if any of that stuff kind of was stored in the way that Lucasfilm keeps all the concept stuff. You know, I mean, there could be a way that it's, you know, there could be a database that I just don't have access to or don't, you know, regularly see that that stuff's kind of locked away in. Um, I, I, what I do see in our, in our kind of more general database is a lot of uh, 
old book covers, the original illustrations for those. I, I see a lot of that stuff. And then we have this style guide art, which is kind of general art that gets turned into T-shirts and on various other products and stuff. So a lot of that stuff is in the database that I have access to. But yeah, maybe there's some secret vault somewhere that I gotta. You're, you're making me think I gotta start asking some questions around work. Like, hey, where's this stuff? I, I like to think that the the dark web at Lucasfilm is like Ewok storybooks. <laughs> like that's, the, that's like the really secret stuff. That's like, yeah, I make a. A solemn swear before I get access to that. <laughs> There's a meeting one day, Phil. You've made it to the to the top level. Here's the password to the to the secret archive of the Ewok storybook art. Yes. Oh man, looking forward to that day. It'll be amazing. <laughs> just, just pump out a few more books, and it'll you'll be there. I know. <laughs> Only on your 20th year at Lucasfilm shall you get access to the Ewok storybooks art. Yes, I'll get there someday. <laughs> With everything you've you've experienced, everything you've done, so so now, like, what does Star Wars mean to you? That's what's crazy. I mean, I've, I've been working on it now. I probably mentioned this earlier in the podcast for over twelve years, and like every day, it's like a part of my life. You know, thinking about it kind of constantly, <laughs> and yet my fandom hasn't really waned at all, which is kind of as amazing to me as it would be to someone hearing this. You know that it's. You know, I really still love it as much as I did when I was a kid. So it really made a huge impact on me. So it kind of, it means a ton, you know, and I know I'm not alone at Lucasfilm. You know, there's, you know, so many people who really love and honor Star Wars and and the work that George created, um, which we're all lucky to be a part of. So, yeah, I mean, it's really hard to put into words how much it means. Yeah. And, and like I said, you know, like, everyone I work with we talk about it all the time in the art department you know uh I sit right in front of uh or in the same little zone as Ryan Church he's right behind me and Christian Altman and Eric Tiemens are on the other side of the room and um and Doug and yeah we all think about it talk about it you know have really strong opinions about it so yeah it's 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 something that we all just really carry with us and it was a part of our all of our childhoods you know we're of that age you know all of us that um, it had a big impact on us when we were kids. So, um, yeah, it, it means a lot. It's hard to say exactly, you know, beyond that, uh, the specifics of it. I mean, I th- yeah, I think it's just it's it's as meaningful to us as it is to fans around the world, for sure. So what we're going to do now is we are going into rapid fire questions. Some of them are Star Wars. Some of them are not. So first, first thing that pops into your mind, I'll start here. Favorite droid. So many good droids. I gotta say, I gotta say R2-D2 is the first one that popped in my mind. The classic. Always cursing R2-D2. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I love R2-D2. Although, I, you know, I was recently thinking a lot about K2SO as well. Um, just how I talked about it on my Twitter account a little bit, just how upsetting and meaningful his, his, his death was in Rogue One. So there's clearly, he resonates with me as a character on some way that I don't fully understand consciously, but yeah, R2-D2 is definitely my favorite. And this is not rapid fire. It's turning into me babbling. So (laughs) there's, there's something extra sad when droids die because I have I have vivid memories as a kid watching heartbeeps and when I thought they were dead at the end I remember bawling my eyes out because I thought the robots died so I can I can relate. 
No, it is. It's yeah. There's something sad about. It's like a pet or something dying. You know, it's like oh, like a little puppy dying. <laughs> All right. Next question. So, of the theatrical films, what's your favorite crawl? Oh, man, you know, I really love the heavy lifting that the Force Awakens crawl had to do, and that opening line, Luke Skywalker has vanished, is so like it's like a gut punch, like boom, like. Um, and yeah, and the, and the fact that it had to recap like 30 years of history and does so, so eloquently, I think that's a really amazing crawl, Force Awakens crawl. Favorite Spinal Tap song? <laughs> oh no. Um, boy, can I say Big Bottom on your podcast? Yes, 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 you can. Okay. Yes, you that's can. The, for whatever reason, that's the one that came to my mind. I'm sure on a, on a, on a different day when I'm not in quarantine for however many days I've been stuck here. Um, it would be a different answer, but yes, big bottom is my, is my answer. I don't know what that means exactly for my psychology and it's a good one. Yeah. So maybe, maybe, maybe in like months from now, it'll be Stonehenge or something. Who knows? Yeah, no. Yeah, exactly. Uh, there's so many good ones to choose from. Actually, yeah, I had a cassette of that, the Spinal Tap soundtrack that I used to listen to when I was wandering around New York city as a student. So on my Walkman, <laughs> you were doing it right. <laughs> <laughs> Favorite John Williams piece of music? Oh, wow. I mean, yeah, I've been lucky enough to see John Williams at the Hollywood Bowl the last few years, um, his summer shows that he does down there. Um, you know, the music is just so it's such an integral part of Star Wars. It's hard to imagine Star Wars without it. Um, I'd have to go with uh, Yoda and the Force, Yoda lifting the X-Wing on Dagobah. Because, mm-hmm. like, I mean, it's such an mm-hmm. emotional scene unto itself, but then... Yeah, that music just makes it even more so. It's really an amazing piece, a marriage of music and and, and visual. Favorite cantina alien? Oh, boy. Wow, you guys with these questions. <laughs> can't be, these can't be rapid fire by nature. It's like you're, these, are, these are the questions. These are, oh. It's rapid fire for us, not for you. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, you get to sit back while I struggle here. Um, I, you know, it's for whatever random reason the the the, the duros that's like pointing at the other duros, the, the two du- the two duros that are the two random duros sitting in one of the little booths talking to each other are are the ones that oh no I think they're standing, but regardless for whatever reason those are the two that came to mind I don't know why I can't I couldn't explain it but but yeah I mean the duros is such an amazing fun crazy design so yeah those guys for whatever reason. Favorite Jackie Chan movie? <laughs> oh no! Wow. I mean, yeah. If you've been following me on Twitter, you know my my mild obsession with Jackie Chan. Um, I got to go with Police Story, the original Police Story. That's the first one I saw. I saw it at a film festival at NYU when I was young, and it blew me away. Police Story one. That's that's an amazing amazing movie. And yeah, Jackie Chan just in general. Love him. Guided by Voices album, B Thousand or Alien Lanes? All right. That's I'm I'm out. No, I can't. <laughs> You've gone too far. No, I'm kidding. Um, you know, I think when I was young I would have said or, or when those albums came out, I would have said, you know, I probably wasn't very young when they came out, but um I would have said uh Alien Lanes because it's kind of the more avant garde of the two. But I think as an old sentimental guy, um B Thousand is the one I've kind of come back to and because it's just got, you know, such emotional songs, you know, and meaningful songs. And, yeah, I mean, it's it's just a stone-cold classic. I love 
that. And I love that you guys know enough to, to ask that question. Yeah. You know, <laughs> like people, people, yeah, people who are listening are like, what are they talking about? <laughs> Guided by voices. I'm going to, so I, I would pick alien lanes, but I'm going to take mm. it further. Cause I'm curious beyond B thousand or alien lanes. What, if you had to pick one other one, cause those are the obvious ones. Um, I would go even further back in time. It's funny because in this quarantine, I've been organizing my vinyl and I've, I've been lucky enough to collect some of the original um, Guided by Voices vinyl from their first few albums, which made their way into that CD collection called Box. Um, and my favorite of those early albums, I think, is Same Place the Fly Got Smashed. Oh. So, uh, yeah, which has got some great cuts on it. And I have it as a sealed copy on vinyl. I think they only made like a thousand of them. Oh, my so goodness. So that's one of my prized, prized possessions as well. I, I finally put it took it out of the mailer and put it in a crate trying to get my life organized here in, in quarantine. So yeah, again, like Star Wars fans right now are listening and they're like, what is this? What, what are they talking about? <laughs> a bunch of random words. Uh, same place before I got smashed. Anyway. All right. Well, let's go to the Star Wars one then. <laughs> if you could only choose one droids cartoon or Ewoks cartoon. Wow. It's like Sophie's choice here. Um, <laughs> But kind of in the re- in the reverse. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, I gotta go with droids. Um, no, sh- no slam on Ewoks and people who love Ewoks, but I think the Mobius influence on droids is kind of pushing me over the edge because I'm such a huge Mobius guy, and um, Mobius is such a big part of you know um, the world of concept art and stuff. So just for the Mobius factor alone, I gotta go with droids. Did in your time at Lucasfilm have do you ever run into Ben Burt in the hallway and does he immediately just talk about droids, the cartoon? Unfortunately, I've only seen Ben in passing a few times, so no, he is. And as far as I know, he was not talking about <laughs> droids at the time. Certainly not to me. So, okay. favorite Star Wars T-shirt that you own? Oh boy, um, actually. Um, the one that I've been wearing a lot lately <laughs> is the Galaxy's Edge Coca-Cola logo, but in Star Wars script, you know, the red t-shirt that looks like a classic Coke logo until you get close enough to me to see like, what does that say? What? And, and think, oh, the, what does that weird ghost t-shirt <laughs> doing? Like, what does that mean? So, um, yeah, I love that, that, that t-shirt for whatever reason. It's just really comfortable too. It's super soft and you know, that's a big factor in, in, in my favorite t-shirts, but yeah, I've got literally probably like, I don't know, upwards of like 30 to 50 Star Wars t-shirts in my closet right now stacked up. So it's, yeah, another Sophie's Choice kind of situation with, with the t-shirts. I don't know. That one just immediately jumped to mind is just because it's really comfortable and I've been wearing it a lot lately. We, we go, we all go in phases where I know I'll have one that I'll wear especially lately like this is this is my new favorite shirt yeah yeah and and one thing i do do is you know we have our company store and sometimes i'll buy two and i'll put one in the t-shirt vault you know for later for you know years down the road so i'll just like tuck it away and kind of forget about it and then dig it up later and be like ooh you know crack open a a rogue one t-shirt with k2so which i was actually just wearing yesterday um so it's kind of nice to have those vintage e t-shirts um, to wear when, when the ones that you bought initially wear out. So try to, try to keep some extra t-shirts on hand for the future. Yeah. That's really smart. We can see why Lucasfilm likes you so much. (laughs) (laughs) Spending half my paycheck on (laughs) (laughs) t-shirts. All right. Hopefully this one isn't creepy, but we want to know what do you like on a pizza? Oh, um, (laughs) 
<laughs> not creepy. Um, and as someone who grew up in New Jersey, I have very strong opinions on pizza. Um, so, I mean, I love what's called the special back in New Jersey, which is sausage and green peppers. That's a classic combination. Um, Italian sausage, obviously. And, um, and just a straight up pepperoni is also great, but I'm very vehemently against the so-called Hawaiian pizza with pineapple. Not going to happen. As if someone from New Jersey, I would be, I would not be allowed back in the state if I said anything good about the Hawaiian pizza. So I'm sorry to all people who love it, but you know, I just got to make my stand here against pineapple on pizza. I hear you. My, my wife and kids, their favorite is they get pineapple. <laughs> they get the Hawaiian all the time. And I always have to get a different pizza f- for me because uh, it's too, it's too sweet for pizza. Pizza shouldn't be that sweet. I agree. Yeah. No, I'm all about the savoring, savory toppings on pizza. <laughs> I don't even entertain the idea of pineapple on pizza. It's real. And there was a reason why I like this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, okay, well, let's, we'll each do one more, each of us. Uh, Sabbath or Zeppelin? Oh, man. Wow. And it, those are actually two bands that in the last few years I've, you know, revisited a lot. I got to go with Sabbath. I'm a Sabbath guy. I mean, I love Zeppelin too, but Sabbath, just like the gloomy darkness, weird tuning, you know, like, just that's my jam. You know, Sabbath, that, that sort of mood and weirdness. That's yeah. That I, I don't think I could live without Sabbath. I might be able to live without Zeppelin, although that would suck. <laughs> to, to, to do so. All right, last one is your favorite Star Trek TV series. You can only pick one. Ooh, wow! Of course, as someone who loves Star Trek, this is something I have thought about before, and I still got to go with my classic answer, which is Deep Space Nine. I think Deep Space Nine is the best Star Trek controversial choice i know some people especially at the time weren't you know so keen on on deep space nine's you know the conflict between the characters and how you know dark it was and you know how it was kind of you know breaking a little bit the utopian vision of the future that gene ronberry had created but uh, those are all the reasons that i love it so um you know uh deep space nine gets my vote um you know, even though my first Star Trek really was Next Generation, I feel like Deep Space Nine kind of took what Next Generation had built and just brought it to a whole nother level. So, um, yeah, love that show. You're in the right place. No pineapple on pizza <laughs> and Deep Space Nine. So we're, we're I'm in a safe space for that for that world. Yeah, for those loves. Thank, thank you. <laughs> well, you know, seriously, thank you so much. I don't remember what episode it was, but when you like tweeted out like. Hey, this episode that Blast Points did, we were just flattered. And yeah, we, we were a fan of yours before that and after that. And it's been such a pleasure to talk to you here today. No, no, I had a blast. And thanks. It's been an honor to be here. Yeah, no, thank you. Thank you for having me and uh, love what you guys do. So um, I'm glad we could finally make it happen. We'll have you back on for our Day of the Dolphin episode. <laughs> coming up in just, okay. just a yeah. matter of months or so. <laughs> Streaming commentary. <laughs> that would be amazing. I'll be a part of that any day of the week. Be careful what you wish for, because it may happen. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> what have I done? I'm like Anakin. What have I done? Yeah. Well, yeah. Thank, thank you so much, Phil. Yeah, no problem. My pleasure. Don't be alarmed. It's only a laser sword fight. Don't be scared. It's only the Death Star destroying another world. 
relax. It's only a movie, and it's all for fun. Director George Lucas and 20th Century Fox present Star Wars. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. And these last points, too accurate for sand people. Only Imperial stormtroopers are so precise. Well, that was a lot of fun. That was amazing. Incredible. <laughs> yeah, that was great. Thank you so much, Phil. We learned a lot. We laughed a lot. We cried a little bit when the robots died. Thank you again to uh, Phil Sostak for taking the time to talk to us. And yeah, same as usual, Apple Podcast Reviews. If you're listening on something Apple, you should leave us a review so it helps more people find the show. Maybe? Is that how it works? I don't know. Some Exegol magic? Sith magic? Somewhere there's a tank with Blast Voice Podcast in it. And there's copies of us in that tank in case... <laughs> the podcast ever dies those apple has one in a tank somewhere to bring us back to life so that's why you gotta give us reviews so we can come back to life it's true it's all true all true and after that don't forget check out our website blastpointspodcast.com which is probably the best place to find back episodes and after that make sure you are on our instagram twitter and facebook Pages And if you're a Facebook person, make sure you sign up for the chill group. It is probably the best place on Facebook right now. And we are doing our Jedi Club movie watch alongs every Saturday. And if you want to support the show in a different way, we've got the Blast Points Army over there on Patreon, where every weekend we have got our recaps for the Disney Gallery Mandalorian show, which every week is blowing our minds. <laughs> but... That's over on our Patreon, so if you want to support us, go sign up over there. But that about wraps up episode 221 here. So stay tuned for uh, our Day of the Dolphin commentary featuring uh, Lucasfilm's Phil Showstack very soon. And uh, <laughs> thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you, everybody. Bye-bye. May the Force be with you. Goodbye, old friend. May the Force be with you. Scott in a Mike Nichols film, The Day of the Dolphin. Dolphin.